part of the president's vision in the trifecta of bills for the, between the bipartisan infrastructure law and the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act is to start doing that commercialization and scaling here. And the utilities are a central partner to doing that. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. The Inflation Reduction Act, also called the IRA, marks one of the greatest investments in clean energy in U.S. history. As part of the $369 billion investment to promote domestic energy production and manufacturing, the IRA established the Energy Infrastructure Reinvestment Program under the Department of Energy's Loan Program Office and appropriated $5 billion to help fund certain clean energy and carbon reduction projects through fiscal year 2026. We'll refer to this program as the EIR, but you may also have heard it referred to as the 1706 program. To date, 50 EEI member companies have announced forward-looking carbon reduction goals, and the financing provisions included in this program can help them access capital needed to accelerate the clean energy transitions in a way that is more affordable for customers. These member companies are well-suited to utilize the EIR to finance the deployment of new clean energy resources in a way that significantly benefits our customers while harnessing innovation. We are honored to be joined today by Jigger Shah, the director of DOE's Loan Programs Office, which oversees the EIR, as well as Emily Fisher, EEI's Executive Vice President of Clean Energy and General Counsel. They both are going to help us dive into this program and explain how it can help our industry accelerate its transition to clean energy resources, while importantly, minimizing the cost impact on customers. Jigger and Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. I gave an extremely brief summary of the EIR, but Jigger, can you elaborate on what the program is and what kinds of projects are eligible for loan guarantees provided by DOE? Yeah, no, I uh, really thank you for uh, the opportunity to talk to all of you and, and, you know, really go into detail here. We have spent the better part of the last five months doing listening sessions across the industry and really talking to many utilities as well as others who might use this program. And so slowly but surely, we're trying to learn not only what the program can do, but all the creative ideas that people have, frankly, to to use it. I think we start with the definition that's in the statute. So it's projects that retool, repower, repurpose, or replace energy infrastructure that has ceased operations, right? So think a coal plant that's shut down, um, a tank farm that, you know, is no longer being used because it includes both electricity and petroleum, Um, but, you know, a pipeline that's no longer being used, et cetera. The other part of the definition is, or enable operating energy infrastructure to avoid, reduce, use, or sequester air pollutants, right? So that's things like taking an existing transmission line that's sort of starting to get old, reconductoring it, uh, and, you know, using advanced conductors that can double or triple the amount of carrying capacity of that transmission line, or, you know, things like taking an old natural gas plant and, um, having it run less hours, but put solar and battery storage on the same site so you can use that interconnection more efficiently. Um, So there's a lot of really creative ideas coming on that side too. I mean, the other area there is hydropower facilities. There's so many hydropower facilities that are, you know, 50, 70, 80 years old, where if you upgrade the facilities with a new turbine, you could double the production, right? So 
there's a lot of really cool stuff being looked at there. And we've talked to a lot of utility companies, so we can go into that a little bit later, but they're seeing a lot of benefits in using the program as well. And maybe one important follow-up. I know the IRA appropriated $5 billion for the program, but isn't the potential loan authority much more than that? Yeah. So the way this works is the um, the loan authority is capped at a large number. In this case, it was $250 billion. It sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money, but um, ultimately, it's really defined by the $5 billion. So the way it works is we underwrite a loan, and then we determine how risky that loan is. And then we have to pay the credit subsidy on behalf of the borrower with that money. It's exactly the same way that the advanced technology vehicle manufacturing program that we've run for, you know, over 14 years that, you know, funded Tesla and others run. So the program can put out loans until it runs out of credit subsidy. So if we do a bunch of risky loans, well, then that 5 billion might stretch at a 10% credit subsidy level. So that means $50 billion worth of total loan authority. And if we do a lot of low risk loans, well, then it can get closer to that $250 billion cap. As our listeners may and should know, EEI's member companies are laser-focused on reducing carbon emissions and integrating more renewable resources into the energy generation mixes. Emily, can you talk about how the generation fleet has changed over the past 10 years, the trajectory that we're on today, and whether you think this program can help change the current trajectory? Thanks, Brian, for that question. I, I will answer it. But first, I really want to thank Jigger for being on this podcast with us today. Um, I will say we saw this program take shape on the Hill in 2021 and 2022, and we were very excited about the potential it would have to support and accelerate the clean energy transition that you mentioned at the beginning, Brian, that we have 50 member companies who have forward voluntary commitments to reduce their emissions to zero or net zero. Um, We really saw this program as a way to maybe even accomplish those goals more quickly. Um, And so it's just really fantastic that it actually materialized in in the IRA when it passed last year. I I actually remember that I was out of the country and someone called me. That's how excited we were to find out that this program was in there. And it was a little bit of a shock. But as you mentioned, Brian, um, this is really about our transition of the generating fleet. And I, I love the array of programs that or opportunities that Jigger outlined at the beginning that we could take advantage of using this um, potential loan guarantee authority. But the story is, and I often say, like, I wish I had a time machine. I could go back and tell my 2012, 2013 self some stuff because she'd be shocked at what has happened in the industry over the last 10 years in particular. Um, We have reduced the amount of coal in our generating fleet pretty dramatically. There's about a third of the coal fleet closed in 2015, 2016 in response to the mercury and air toxic standards, but also in response to really the dramatically declining costs of renewable technologies, particularly wind and solar. And so when you look at our generating mix today, um, I think this is what we're going to see and we see the data for 2022. This is what EIA has been telling us. This will be the first year that coal made up probably less than 20% of the energy we generated. Renewables are probably going to go up over 20% nationally for the first time. And, you know, we still use a lot of natural gas in the system, but that natural gas allows us to integrate more renewables and to take more coal off the system. And so the exciting thing about this program is it's going to help us continue to do the stuff that we already know works. And, And this decade, I've always said, is going to be a decade about 
putting more renewables on the system, putting more storage on the system. And so this program uh, would allow us to make those kinds of investments and to continue to close older coal-based units in particular while managing costs to customers and um, building new clean stuff. It's really an exciting opportunity. It would be helpful to explain to our listeners how this program could transfer savings to customers while also helping the environment. So I think it might be helpful for both of you to weigh in, really just explain how electric companies might use the EIR program to continue to deploy more zero-meeting resources like we've been chatting about and to really harness market trends leading to the retirement of some of those older, higher-emitting generating facilities and really while preventing significant financial impact to customers, especially today, uh, affordability always is put in front and center, but with increasing gas prices and the energy war that Russia is waging against the world right now, I mean, affordability is front and center in a way that it really never has been before. Everyone loves to talk about utility accounting. I'm sure that's where you thought I was going to go with this question. <laughs> but, um, you know, when we make investments in, you know, major energy infrastructure like generating units, we usually depreciate those assets over pretty significant periods of time. Um, a coal unit, for example, could be depreciated over as many as 40 years. And so when you're looking at retiring a unit, one potential impediment is the fact that you might not have fully depreciated those costs. And those costs are recovered through electricity prices that customers pay. And so one of the things that this program could allow a company to do is to sort of refinance that undepreciated balance, actually take it out of rates, take that burden off of the customer, and then take new capital and invest in new generating resources. So that's where you get that sort of double bang for your buck that you were talking about, Brian, where you get environmental benefits, where we get a coal unit that's been taken off the system and replaced with cleaner generating units or you know non-emitting sources. And that's where you get a reduction in emissions, a reduction in other kind of harmful air pollutants that have real impacts on communities. And you get the reduction in the cost that customers pay at the same time, which is a really, which is one of the reasons why this program is so unique is that it, it has sort of that two-pronged effort that allows you to um, reduce economic burdens on customers, but still get the benefits of additional investments. So Jigger, it really sounds like this is the right set of tools for the moment we find ourselves in. Yeah. I mean, so we have talked to many utility companies and I'd say that um, about 25 utility companies were on, you know, let's say conversation number three. Um, so they've sort of been able to absorb what we've talked about, talked about it internally, come back to us with questions, um, and really think this stuff through. And, and I guess what I'd say is that um, while the money can be used for lots of things, I'd say there's three principal places where the utilities are most excited today. I think one is that ultimately what we're doing is replacing fuel costs with assets, right? I mean, that's what renewables and a lot of other things really are. And, and so as a result, the entire infrastructure industry, right, not just electric utilities, but including water and sewer and others, have gone from roughly $25 billion of CapEx a year in 2000 to almost $200 billion of CapEx a year today, right? And so when you think about how big those numbers are, it's increasingly hard for electric utilities to raise that much capital in the debt markets without negatively impacting their credit rating. And so a lot of uh, utilities have been told by S&P and Moody's and others that if they use this program, then they're less likely to get downgraded, right? And so, and, and, and doing, you know, these big capital projects, 
some of which are you know forced by um, just timing and others uh, because a coal plant's retiring or something like that and others because they've got an underground distribution systems or you know update uh, old transmission lines or the things that have um, uh, come up. I'd say the the second thing that utilities have been telling us is, they have a lot of uh, great ideas on how to reduce costs and uh, accelerate the energy transition, uh, but they spread those costs out over, let's say, a five to 10-year horizon. And this program really allows them to accelerate a lot of those investments earlier to get benefits for ratepayers um, earlier. So they're very excited about that. And then I'd say the third piece, which is, I would say, the most important piece, and and the one that you know we were you know kind of surprised by, is that many of the utilities have retired infrastructure structure that they largely forgot about. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. They just didn't, they didn't realize that that thing that they've been counting as a liability on their balance sheet is actually an asset, right? It's a coal plant that they shut down seven years ago, a natural gas plant that they shut down 10 years ago, right? But guess what? It qualifies for this program and it happens to have an interconnection point to the grid right there. It has, you know, water rights. It has a trained workforce in the area. It has all of these benefits. And so the utilities are going, wait a second, you're saying that I can put a bunch of infrastructure there and make it useful again? And it's it's a game changer. They're like, this is great. This was on our liability part of our balance sheet, um, you know, where it was a brownfield, where, you know, we didn't know what to do with it. We had to clean it up, some other things. And now they're they're able to actually repurpose it, retool it, and get it back into the fleet, you know, helping to reduce electricity bills. Um, and then the last thing I'd say, um, which is related to that, is that we are seeing a tremendous interest from utility companies around coal to nuclear. And, and that's, it's just off the charts. I think when you think about a just transition for those workers, many of whom are union workers, um, for many of these communities, uh, these coal plants are contributing, you know, 20 to 40% of the entire property tax base for the town. Um, you know, these towns, uh, uh, you know, have been in this struggle, right, where the utilities don't want to shut off the coal plant because of the economic impact. And the governors, of course, don't want them to be shut down either. But they're, you know, generating power at 30, 40% higher prices than the rest of their fleet. And, you know, they've got a decision to make. And so a lot of folks, and you saw that within the most recent IRP from, from Duke uh, this last week, and then you've got other, you know, utilities that are doing the same thing, are really exploring coal to nuclear transitions, particularly in that 2031, 2032 timeframe. And this program really allows them to do that more confidently. And I know we've referred a couple of times looking at like generation additions as a bit of an accounting exercise, but you bring up a super important point that our workforce is critically important to to our success. And when you do have these retirements, they absolutely have that impact on those local communities. So maybe Emily, you can talk a little bit about how as an industry, this is an issue we deal with and take very seriously, as well as again, I don't know if there's anything you want to add on the potential uh, opportunities for this program to help those communities. That's a great question. I, I think Jigger touched on a really important element uh, when he was talking about coal to nuclear, which is such an interesting opportunity. I just learned about that maybe like 18 months ago. and I was a little bit blown away that we could take that asset, as, as Jigger said, an asset that someone thought was a liability and turn it into a real clean energy opportunity, but also help preserve jobs. I think as Jigger really aptly said, uh, big generating units can be the largest taxpayer in a county. It can They can be responsible for paying for a school system. 
Um, it's just recently talking to some folks about a coal facility that actually is the reason why community has a water system. Um, so there are a lot of complicated interactions and interconnections that have to be thought through when you think about closing a big piece of infrastructure and communities and jobs are one of them. And we are really sensitive to that. I think electric companies maybe uniquely feel of their communities. Um, the kind of infrastructure we have isn't the kind you can pick up and take somewhere else. So we are in our communities and we're interested in their economic health and the health of our workers and their their friends and family, right? So I think one of the great things about the program is you can actually roll in sort of worker assistance programs or community assistance programs into some of your funding requests. But sort of also more broadly, you can look at these opportunities as ways to invest in these communities, not just take away from them. Um, and so we are committed to doing that. I know that we're thinking long and hard about what are some of the leading practices with respect to community transitions, other parts of uh, Jigger's agency, DOE, and the interagency working group on coal community transitions are really helping us contemplate how we support workers and communities through the transition. But the program is sort of unique in recognizing that that's a valid use of funds. Um, and so I, I love that. Um, and uh, I think the uh, coal to nuclear is just so exciting. Um, and I, you know, I, I think not off topic, but one of the things that I was really thinking about when Jigger was talking about using existing transmission interconnections is if there's one thing that everyone in Washington agrees on, it's that we need more transmission. And the other thing that we agree on is that it's really hard to get built. And we're not sure that we know how to make that happen right now. And so using what we have as efficiently as possible in this interim period is so hugely important. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, transmission capacity, building brand new stuff with uh, brand new right of ways is, is time consuming, particularly long lines and, um, and reconductoring existing lines, particularly because you know, so many of our lines were built in the 1960s and 70s. Um, they're at this sort of point where um, they need to be upgraded anyway. And so instead of upgrading them with the exact same cable, um, you know, you, you can upgrade them with advanced conductors, which costs about 30% more but then doubles or triples the capacity of the line. And um, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, renewable energy generators are willing to pay for that incremental uh, cost. So it's not being borne by ratepayers. Um, and so we're excited about that. The other thing that I, that I want to make sure everybody knows is that um, the program is also designed uh, to accelerate remediation work. And so you can also use the the program to accelerate cleanup of brownfields of, you know, draining coal fly ash ponds, um, lots of those things too. So we're getting a lot of excitement there because, you know, people want to do the right thing in these communities, but they just haven't been able to figure out exactly how to pay for them um, and how to, how to allocate the costs uh, appropriately across multiple years. I'm so glad you mentioned the remediation element of that because I forget about it. And we do have a lot of like coal ash ponds that need to be remediated and, I've spent a lot of time uh, talking to electric companies um, who have other brownfield sites that's, that they'd love to see redeveloped because they provide economic opportunity. I don't want to bring us too far off topic, but it seems relevant to note that the EIR isn't the only program under the loan program's office that was funded by the IRA. Jigger, can you talk a little bit about the Title 17 Innovative Clean Energy Loan Guarantee Program? And uh, obviously across the world, we're, we're looking at supply chain challenges and the fact that this program seems to look to make sure that we have the, the goods and services and materials to actually make this transition a little more successful. 
Yeah, no, it's a it's a great point. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, star power here out of the the 1706 program, and so it's it's fun to talk about. But we also have other programs at the loan programs office, and you know the tried and true one is the 1703 program that has been around for uh, many years and has you know funded a lot of innovative uh, clean energy projects uh, across the last 14 years, including uh, the Vogel nuclear plant that'll be. Uh, turning on here this year. So we're excited about that. But I think um, one of the things that we're seeing is just a huge amount of interest from utilities uh, around the use of these programs uh, across uh, their territory. So for instance, um, there's a lot of people adding electric vehicles and heat pumps today. Um, and while selling more kilowatt hours is great, in some cases, they're concentrating load growth in certain neighborhoods that you know, where the utilities uh, don't want to spend another $100 million upgrading the substation or the the distribution uh, lines. And with the current supply chain challenges, it could be four years to get some of those substations. And so, so what some of the utilities are doing is working with us to implement virtual power plant uh, rollouts to be able to manage when those loads come on uh, without any customer discomfort so that uh, they don't have to upgrade those. And so you see that with... Um, you know, Florida Power and Lights new tariffs where it's like $35 fixed to um, to put a home charger in your garage and they get to, you know, you plug it in when you come home from work and it only takes an hour and a half to charge your car, but, um, but you know, they can choose within that 11 hour period when to, when to dispatch your charger, right? And so there's a lot of great new technologies that are being done there. We're also um, we've also expanded uh, the authorities that we have there within the bipartisan infrastructure law uh, to be able to do critical minerals processing, manufacturing, and recycling. Uh, and also, if you have a program that's supported by a state energy financing institution, so for instance, many utilities have uh, programs to assist low moderate income consumers with loans uh, to be able to get um, a refrigerator, water heater, you know, heat pump, uh, other things. Um, if they're so, if those are supported by a state energy financing institution, then we drop the innovation requirement um, to get money from us, and and the, the ratio is still not yet set, but we're looking at one in twenty, right? So if you get a hundred million dollars from the state energy financing institution, we can match it with two billion dollars worth of loan authority from our office out of the seventeen oh three program. So we're very excited. So we got more loan authority there out of the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and so we're we're excited about how much interest there is in that program. And looking at really just the date as we kind of kick off the new year here in 2023, um, it looks like the IRA provides the funding and loan authority for this program only through fiscal year 2026. So Jigger, while you and your team at DOE are doing your due diligence and collecting public comments as you're finalizing the rules and regulations, what can the interested applicants and EIs members and others be doing now to make sure that they're ready to go as soon as some of these official application periods open? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And one one clarification that I'll make because it's, you know, highly technical and unfortunately boring, but um, but you can close the loan in 2026 um, and then take five years to draw the loan. So okay. for a lot of folks, you know, they're looking at projects in 2027, 2028, 2029, but closing the loans in 2026 
um, and then drawing it over time. And so we're we're excited about that. But to answer your question specifically, um, you know, they definitely should visit our website and go to the Energy Infrastructure Reinvestment page under the Loan Programs Office section. You can just Google uh, DOE Loan Programs Office blog, and you know you'll get you'll get uh, you know some of that there. Um, and we've got a full team. We've hired almost a hundred people since the IRA has passed. Um, and those people are there really to help speak with potential applications and company officials um, to get pre-application consultations, right? Like we we get the fact that just reading our documents and filling out the paperwork isn't really enough. And so we do extensive pre-consultations with all of these potential applicants before um, they you know have to put the pen to paper and, and do a lot of this work. They can also email us at LPO at hq.doe.gov. You've talked about listening sessions and some of the engagement you're doing with member companies, but as with all energy projects, there's obviously local community impact. So have you been doing similar listening sessions with communities? And I imagine uh, we know that we're working really closely with our members, for instance, on some of the, the amazing funding for electric transportation and EV charging infrastructure, and the fact that a lot of those programs are being administered by by states and state departments of transportation, I guess a long way of saying that we know local government, state communities have a, a critical role to play in some of these processes, and their, their voices are important in some of these decisions. So do your listening sessions extend to communities as well? We're having listening sessions across the board and includes, you know, mayors and um, community organizers and environmental NGOs and, you know, and anyone who, who frankly, uh, wants to comment on this really important program. So we're, we're very excited there. I think the other thing that we uniquely do um, that I want to highlight is just that because we're commercial debt, right, ultimately we're a commercial debt program, there's a certain framework that we have to operate in which isn't true for grant programs, right? Grant programs can sort of move things around and change things up based on, you know, the priorities that they have. For us, we have to meet a reasonable prospect of repayment, right? And so I think the good thing that we bring to the table here is we can explain what these things mean to all of those stakeholders, right? Because everybody wants uh, this program to be used for something, which is great, and we're happy to learn about it. But we also have to live within the realm of the rules and the statute and the reasonable prospect for repayment framework that we have. And what I've found is particularly with some of the environmental NGOs and mayors and you know the elected officials, um, they'll come with ideas, we'll be able to explain to them what the rules really say. And they'll say, wait a second, you're right. Like we should you know, not focus on these five things, but actually focus more on these other five things where there's actually more of a direct nexus with the program. And so I think it cuts down on the noise on their side because they don't want to waste their time either. Um, and it cuts around, you know, like just really helping find common ground for all of those players so that we can confidently move forward on the energy transition. Look, I think this is going to be the largest wealth creation opportunity of the next few decades, um, you know, figuring out this energy transition. And frankly, America has a lot to offer. We have by far the best technologies in the world. And the utilities want to play a huge role in commercializing these technologies here in this country um, so that we can then export these solutions around the world. So I think all of those stakeholders have a common vision for uh, America doing big things. And um, and so we we play I think a critical role within these listening sessions, on really reducing some of the gaps between people's understanding. And this is going to be a simplistic question because I have no 
close knowledge of the rules and regulations here, but knowing you and your team are working on the rules and regulations and administering the program, uh, is there any element of your team saying, this looks like such a good opportunity, bring us your ideas, who wants to try this? Or is it a little bit more of a role where you have to be impartial throughout the process? Well, I think we're always impartial. Um, I think that the 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 key to this is to say that we're currently in the brainstorming session, right? And so ultimately, um, our impartiality only matters when they apply for a loan, right? Like when they apply for a loan, then we read the words on a page and we evaluate the, the loan. In this phase right now, I mean, I'm happy to, you know, be as off the wall as the next person around, you know, what could qualify, like, you know, and, and people have been very creative, which I love, right? I mean, I think some person came to me and said, you know, hey, Jigger, what about replacing all the boilers in all the commercial buildings? Are those deemed energy infrastructure? Or what do you think about like an old aluminum plant or steel plant? You know, is that energy infrastructure? And I want them to ask us all these questions, right? And then I don't have all the answers. I go to my lawyers and go to other folks and we like run all these, these answers down, right? And then we're writing an interim final rule to try to like, you know, to to put all of these things in one place. And so so I do think we are in the brainstorming session. And so anyone who has any ideas on how we should use this program should reach out to us. Um, I'll give you another example of, you know, something someone talked to us about. Several utilities have large fleets of hot water heaters that they own, right? And they've been operating them remotely as demand response assets for decades, right? And they're saying, hey, you know, if we upgrade all of these things, is that viewed as energy infrastructure? And, you know, probably. So, you know, I think it's one of those things where, you know, people should come to us and utilities have a lot more flexibility than the rest of the um, ecosystem does. So when you look at the definition of retool and repurpose and replace, for a utility company, they can say, hey, we're shutting down this natural gas peaker plant over here and we're replacing it with a virtual power plant across our territory. That's replace, right? It's not as easy for an IPP to say that because an IPP has one asset that they own. And so they probably have to replace things at that site to qualify under 1706. Whereas for a utility company, as long as they're replacing it with something else on their in their total territory to provide the same level of resiliency, reliability, uh, effectiveness, um, it could qualify. And Emily, on the other side here, how beneficial is it to have this open communication and these listening discussions uh, for our members as they're really thinking about these? It seems like it's, it's really beneficial that uh, Jigger, you and your office share the enthusiasm for the opportunities here. Oh, they're incredibly important. Um, we, as I mentioned, had sort of seen this program in development and had a couple of use cases in our heads um, that we hoped would fit into this language. And so, you know, on the one hand, um, we've been sort of focused on those use cases, and, and those are about retiring older fossil units and replacing them with cleaner generation um, and helping to uh, manage some of the impacts to customers by, you know, reducing impacts to electricity bills. And, you know, Jigger talked about some of the flexibility, like a key issue from us from the get-go was like, does it have to be in the same location or can it be on our system? And Jigger just really eloquently pointed out that we do have that flexibility and they're willing to consider that. So on, on the one hand, we've had very specific conversations about kind of use cases we already had in our heads. And those have been useful for us to, I think use this really great thing where you have to work within this framework, Jigger. We have to make sure that the use cases we had in our head can be worked into your framework. And so it's been a really terrific partnership to try and figure that out. But then at the same time, it's been wonderful for us too to sort of hear all of these sort of 
maybe slightly more creative ideas that others have. I mean, I will say that I've had not only great conversations with folks at DOE, but um, Jigger mentioned like environmental groups. We've had environmental groups come to us and say like, hey, what about this? And so it's it's been a really um, probably hectic, but fun last you know five or six months. Um, I'm excited about some of the first movers here. Um, for us, I, I look forward to proof of concept on some of our original use cases, but um, really it's been a terrific partnership with DOE. They've been very willing to sit in the room and have some conversations that probably some people would think are pretty dorky and pretty boring, but really helpful in helping us understand how we could access the money consistent with Jigger's framework and then really start making progress. And I also think it's a hugely important point um, that was made about you got to get the money sort of uh, tied to a project by 2026, but that there's more time to spend it. Because, um, you know, as I, as you mentioned, as I mentioned, Brian, members have plans for this decade. And uh, we saw actually a ton of coal closures in 2022, about more than 11,000 megawatts. Um, and the next sort of big tranche is slated for 28. And that's tied to some environmental rules that are, are uh, related to effluent limitation guidelines on the water side, where people had to opt into a closure subcategory last year. Um, but so it's great that we have this time to like have a plan, get it approved, get the loan approved, and then take the next couple of years to actually get it all done. I think one thing that all of us will agree on is that, and you said this about transmission lines, nothing about building big energy infrastructure goes real fast. So we got to get this all lined up and done by 2026, but then we have a little bit more time to actually implement. Um, But I'll just say again, the DOE team has been really generous with their time, helping us understand how they think. Um, Jigger understands how we think, but they've been learning about how we think about things. (laughs) And maybe just to take a step back and just really reflect on this moment that we have looking at some of the new clean energy and climate laws that we've seen signed into law over the past year or so, you see superlatives. And I know I think all of us have used them. These are transformational policies. They're monumental policies and opportunities. But as we look and share the goal of trying to accelerate the path to resilient clean energy future, really how important is industry government in this moment to make this happen? Well, look, it's critical. I I think that in general, America has been extraordinary at innovation, right? For 45 years, we have out-innovated everybody in the world. I think where we have had more of a struggle is around commercialization and scaling. And for a lot of the technologies, they were commercialized and scaled overseas that we invented. Um, And a lot of those jobs, those manufacturing jobs are there, right? And I think you know, part of the president's vision and the trifecta bills for the, between the bipartisan infrastructure law and the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act is to start doing that commercialization and scaling here. And the utilities are a central partner to doing that, right? Whether it's in nuclear or in hydrogen or in transmission or in carbon sequestration and storage or in all of these other sectors that we're looking at, the electric utilities are going to be partners with us in every single one of these sectors. Um, and they're really good at lots of things that we need, right? Worker training, figuring out how to do these things safely, um, figuring out how we actually make sure that we're instituting standards um, so that things can be maintained properly for the next 30 or 40 years, right? I think that we need to do big things, but we also need to do them correctly. And I think the electric utility industry has had decades of proof of being able to do that well. And so we're excited. We're excited about the partnership, but we're also excited about the moment that we're in where we don't have to export our innovation around the world to get it commercialized and scaled up. We can do it right here. Well, 
I first have to say, you've never met people who love codes and standards more than us. So <laughs> if you're looking to make something replicable and safe, you found your people. Um, but I, I 100% agree. I think everyone does. This is a unique moment made possible by the legislation that was passed over the first two years of this administration. You know, our members have pretty clear lines of sight to 70, 80, maybe even 90% reductions in emissions using existing technologies. But, you know, several years ago, we realized that we were going to need 24-7 dispatchable clean technologies to get all the way. Um, I, it depends on what day I'm having, if all the way to zero or all the way to 100. Um, zero emissions are 100% clean, right? Um, and I, I often say that electric companies like to be the third person to do something the first time or do something, be the first person to do something the third time, right? And these programs, our business model doesn't lend itself to taking risks on untested technologies. It just doesn't. Um, but these programs allow us to participate in the commercialization of new clean energy technologies in a way that just really hasn't happened before. We've always had some leaders who, who are, you know, are really interested in technology deployment and commercialization, but as a general matter, our state commissions don't love that. They were, they're like, does it work? And I had just, a, Emily, I had a, a conversation, didn't mean to interrupt, uh, no, go ahead. where one of our colleagues said, we work at the speed of utility jealousy. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah, but now we have that, right? People we are like, do. wait, are they doing something cool? I want to do that cool thing. I mean, yeah. um, the, the number of folks who are responding to uh, DOE's solicitations under the, you guys call it the bipartisan infrastructure law. We, for some reason, have decided that we're calling it the IIJA after the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Um, <laughs> but I mean, the the number of folks who talk to us about the fact that they're getting into a hydrogen hub, that they're putting uh, forward an application for CCS projects, um, uh, long duration energy storage, all these sorts of things that I thought were post 2030 technologies, it feels like it's possible to pull them forward maybe into this decade. And that's huge. And that will accelerate the transition uh, in, a, in a way that sounds like it can be both cleaner and more affordable. And so that's that's always our trifecta, clean, affordable, and we need those technologies to be reliable. If we do that, we've had a really successful energy transition. And to your point, Jigger, I think we pretty regularly see announcements about the world's largest solar plus storage project. And it usually only has that claim to fame for a few weeks until a slightly <laughs> bigger one gets announced. So it's definitely an exciting time. I won't say that we have members who take turns telling us which ones have more renewables in their fleet. I'm the largest owner of renewables in America. No, I'm the largest. It's a good fight to have. It is. Well, Jigger, thank you so much for joining Emily and me on the show today. Uh, while you still have the mic, is there anything we haven't touched about about the program or there, I, I know there's a lot going on over at DOE, but if there are any particular activities that are helping to deploy these new carbon-free technologies, you have the mic. Yeah, look, I, you know, I think that the implementation phase has started, right? So we passed laws. It's great. We have a lot more resources, but we're now, you know, in the, into the implementation phase. I do think you're going to see um, opportunities at number probably $60 billion in 2023. Um, and this is across direct air capture, you know, across hydrogen, decarbonization of industries, uh, you know, I think decarbonization of maritime, of aircraft. I mean, it's just, it, you know, I, I really think that 
Electric utilities play this really unique role where, yes, they have their own carbon emissions and they're working hard to decarbonize, but they also have this really important economic development um, mandate in their communities, right? They want to support new manufacturing facilities. They want to support customers that are growing, right? And I think that when you think about um, how many new manufacturing companies um, we expect to have in this country, I think there's already been roughly 200 that have been announced. And then we still haven't implemented the full resources we have, right? There's a 48C tax credit. There's all sorts of other new tech, uh, new programs. And so we're also partnered with the electric utility industry um, around uh, making sure that these economic development opportunities know where to go to get resources that they need to be able to more confidently build out their facilities and create jobs. Um, in every utility territory. So we're excited by the partnership and I really do think it extends, uh, you know, pretty broadly. And I know you and your team, Emily, you you look pretty closely, pretty often at just the enabling role that electricity has to help other major emitting sectors of the economy, whether it's transportation or industrial processes where you actually can substitute in clean, efficient electric energy. There, there's a lot to keep you and your team busy. Uh, we don't lack for things to do, but uh, we're, we're here at a very exciting time. And as we work to reduce emissions from our sector, uh, we're just very cognizant that electrification is a huge tool for helping harder to decarbonize sectors make some progress too. So like I said, we don't lack for things to do, but it's all good stuff. Great. Well, thank you both. And I imagine we'll be speaking with you all again soon. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.